Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are continuing with our discussion of the attributes of God and we are doing chapter 8, and the title of that is Denying Entailment. So right off the bat, what is entailment, and at least in this conversation? I understand that we're talking a little bit more about Luis de Molina's philosophy and his ideas of middle knowledge and things like that, or at least that relates, but what is entailment, and what does denying entailment mean? Entailment is simply the logical connection between two notions. For instance, the notion that I'm a human being entails that I'm a mammal. However, that I'm a mammal does not entail that I'm a human being. We can begin with kind of an analogy of entailment. Let's suppose that I have power to simply lift my foot. And if I desire to lift my foot, I can lift my foot. However, let's assume also that there's a 2,000-pound rock on my foot and that in order to lift my foot, I would have to be able to lift this 2,000-pound rock because it's on my foot and gravity obtains on the earth and I'm on the earth. So the power to move my foot entails power to move a 2,000-pound rock, but since I can't move a 2,000-pound rock, I don't have power to move my foot, even though normally I would have such a power. It's just that the circumstances preclude me having that power because I don't have the power to lift a 2,000-pound rock. This is a straightforward analogy to the entailment principle that is involved in the argument for incompatibility. So if in order to exercise a free act, I have to have the power to do this or that, but if God knew in the past, in 1900, that I was going to do this rather than that, then I don't have power to do that because that would entail power to do something I don't have power to do. And that's to change the fact that God knew that I was going to do this. So I don't have power to do that. And so it's a straightforward entailment. However, some people have attacked this entailment principle because there's also a disanalogy. There's a two-way entailment with God's knowledge. Not only does the fact that I am going to move my foot entail that God knows that I'm going to move my foot, that God knows I'm going to move my foot entails that I'm going to move my foot. Whereas if I have power to move the rock entails I would be able to lift 2,000 pounds, the fact that there's a rock doesn't entail I have power to move my foot. <laughs> okay? So they've suggested that the disanalogy is something that they can hang their hat on. And that's the approach that Lisa de Molina took. And just so you know, I regard De Molina as one of the brightest theologians in the history of the Christian Church, so I'm not taking on a lightweight here. I'm taking on one of the finest theologians that I have ever read. Does that explain it for you? Yeah. If to have the power to do a thing means that I have the power to do something else as well, and I don't have the power to do that something else as well, then I don't have the power to do what requires me to be able to do that thing. So in order for me, if I have to have the power to change God's past knowledge in order to be free, and I don't have that power because I can't change God's past knowledge, then it follows that I'm not free. That's the simple summary. We're basically using that analogy of a 2,000-pound rock. We're saying that God's knowledge of the past is that 2,000-pound rock, whereas moving your foot is like exercising your free will. In theory, you could exercise your free will, except there's this 2,000-pound rock, or the fact that God knew in the past what you were going to do, that keeps you from exercising that free will. And there you go. 
And what I want to say is that it logically entails that. I don't want to say that it causally. There's a difference between the rock actually physically stops me from lifting my foot. I don't think we could say that God's foreknowledge physically stops me from making a choice. Yet simply that logically it entails that I have a power to do something I can't do. All right. And then also in this introductory section, you go through this water and a tree possible world example. What we're dealing with here, it simply shows the logical entailment. If I'm going to have a world with trees on it, then I have to have a world with water as well. So the assertion, the world has trees, logically entails that the world also has water because trees need water to live. So the possible world where there are living trees but no water isn't a logically possible world. I can conceive of it, but it's not a logically possible world. The only way there could be such a world is if trees don't need water to live, but the fact is that they do. So here's another example of a logical entailment that meets the requirements of the entailment principle that's at issue in the foreknowledge argument. All right, great. So yeah, we've gone through a few examples, so hopefully that's a little bit more clear. Does that make sense, at least on its face, to you, Jacob? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and we're going to explain it more as we go, so the parts that don't hopefully will. And again, as we're talking about God's foreknowledge here, those are just analogies to help understand what we're getting at here. Anyway, let's move into what Molina's response to this entailment problem is. So he sees this problem, and his answer is actually pretty surprising because it seems that it commits some logical fallacies, at least in my view. So go ahead and tell us more about what Molina's response is. But Molina admits that we can't have the power to do A if we don't have the power to do B, and A entails B. So he admits the logical principle. However, what he actually does is he limits the circumstances that are going to count as something that's in the past that would be relevant to exercise of our power. So what he actually does is says, look, God's knowledge is not causally involved in the history of the world. And only facts like events or exercises of action that are involved in the causal history of the world should be taken into consideration when we consider what is in the past. And therefore, since God's knowledge isn't that kind of a causal activity in the past, we don't consider it when we're considering those things that would be inconsistent with free will. And so what he wants to do is to simply say, I'll admit that given the fact that God has foreknowledge, it logically entails that you don't have power to do otherwise, that you don't have the kind of libertarian free will at issue. But I'm just going to disregard those and say that the only circumstances that I believe are relevant are those that we should take into consideration because they're causally involved. He doesn't really give an argument for why that's the case. As far as I can see, he merely assumes that that's the case. And I would add that this particular reading of De Molina is given by Alfred Fredozo, who used to be a, a professor of philosophy and religion at Notre Dame. Also, it was a Molinist philosopher, and a very good one at that. He tries to clarify the argument, and he acknowledges the problems on the things that seem to be the problems in Molina's argument, and then he clarifies them, at least in his view, in a way that he says resolves those issues. So if you could kind of sum up what his point of view on Molina's argument was and how he resolves it for himself. Well, because he's a Molinist, what he actually argues is that God's knowledge isn't causally related, and the entailment principle is limited to those things which actually have some causal effect on our power to act otherwise, like a rock acting on my foot. And that's why I gave that kind of an analogy to begin with, to make the distinction. And so, let's say that for De Molina, God is outside of time, he's not inside of time, and so that he really isn't in the past at all. 
and his knowledge isn't what causes me to do anything. And so I do that freely, and therefore his knowledge doesn't cause me to act the way that I do, which would be in opposition to the Thomistic or Calvinistic view of God's knowledge. Um, and so he would argue that the Molinist solution was successful. Now, I would add, that was initially the position that Ferdozo took. I think he initially came to the conclusion that that was not an adequate position, so he backed off of it. Okay. What reasons did he give for backing off of it? He believed, we'll deal with, with this in the next chapter, that God's knowledge isn't really about the past if it's not causally related, and therefore he adopted a different solution the Okamist solution to the problem of incompatibility. And so he read De Molina as not arguing that there's not logical entailment, but rather that God's knowledge is a soft fact about the past, and therefore it's not really inconsistent with her acting in a way differently than we do, because it's really about God's knowledge in the future and not about God's knowledge in the past. So we're going through Molina's response. Is there anything before we go on to power entailment that needs to be clarified? Well, I think we have to simply recognize that Molina's response isn't going to be adequate because let's assume for a moment that God's knowledge isn't causally involved in the history of the world. It still logically entails we don't have the power to do otherwise. And so it's irrelevant whether it's causally involved in the past. It logically entails the conclusion. It's another form of the argument that unless it can show that God's knowledge causally entails that I do what I do, somehow it's not relevant. But the logical argument still goes through. And so the argument, in my view, simply begs the question and isn't successful. Okay, so he's basically solving the problem that's not the problem. He's saying, oh, well, God didn't cause it, therefore it was free. We're saying, well, you know, the argument isn't that God caused it, it's that because God knew about it, it makes it a past fact, and if it's a past fact, then it can't be different than it is, and therefore it's like that rock sitting on your foot, and you can't do anything about it. Right, it still logically entails I don't have the power in question, and that's all the argument really needs to show unless he wants to deny the logical entailment involved, and he doesn't, with respect to the fact that we really don't have the power to do otherwise. In fact, I think what it reduces to is the kind of soft deterministic power that is consistent with determinism. I would have that power if the world past had been different than it was with respect to God's knowledge, but God's knowledge isn't different than it is, so I don't have that power. I would have that power if I had so decided. The fact I can't so decide is irrelevant on the soft determinist view. But that really begs the question with respect to libertarian free will. And so it's just not a successful response. All right. Um, I think that sums that part up. For power entailment, the next section. This is really where the incompatibility argument started in the late 60s. And there was a flourishing of discussion of this argument for 40 years based upon Pike's work. Let me just read from the book here more about this Pike person. So just as he said, the modern debate over the compatibility of foreknowledge and free will began in the 1960s with A.N. Pryor and Nelson Pike. Pike had an article called Divine Omniscience and Voluntary Action, and he wrote it while he was attending Cornell University, or I guess teaching there, I don't know, just says at Cornell University, maybe teaching? He was teaching. Okay, and it sparked an extended controversy that's kind of gone on over a long time. And so what he argued was that... Well, first off, let me ask you this. Why is it called P6? Because it's part of his larger argument, and that's just what we have to call it? Yeah, it was just premise six in Pike's argument, so we begin with P6. The controversial premise in Pike's argument was premise six, and so we just look at premise six because that's the one everybody took issue with. Okay, so if God existed at T1, and if God believed at T1 that a person named Jones would do a certain action X at T2, 
Then, if it was in Jones's power to refrain from doing the action X, then one of the following three things has to be true. So here's the three things. A. It was within Jones's power at time two to do something that would have brought it about that God held a false belief at T1, or the time prior before he did it. Or B. It was within Jones's power at time two to do something which would have brought it about that God did not hold the belief at T1. Or C. It was within Jones's power at T2 to do something that would have brought it about that God held a false belief, and thus that God did not exist at T1. So yeah, let's talk about those three assertions. Well, what he's saying is, I'm looking at all the possibilities of what could follow. I would have to have one of these powers if I have the power to change the past. I would have to be able to make it that God held a false belief, or make it that he didn't hold that belief at all, or that he didn't exist at that time. One of those things would have to follow from my libertarian free will. All right, where do we go from there? The next thing in my notes is about Plantinga arguing with Pike. Alvin Plantinga argued that Pike was wrong. Let me tell you a little bit about Plantinga. Plantinga is the most influential philosopher of religion in the 20th century. Continues to write. He was at Notre Dame, and it would be hard to find a finer philosopher. He wrote extensively on the logic of possible worlds and developed the possible world semantics. And so if there was a heavyweight ever in philosophy religion, that would be Alvin Plantinga. What he's saying is Plantinga is wrong. It doesn't entail any of those three things. In fact, what it entails is that if I were to act in a way that were inconsistent with God's knowledge, then that God's knowledge would have been different, and therefore what we want to say is simply something like this. What Pike originally talked about was Jones's power to mow his lawn, okay, so I'm going to put it in that context. So, in 1900, God knew that Jones was going to mow his lawn in 2000, okay, and Plantinga says it doesn't entail that he held a false belief or that he didn't hold that belief or that God didn't exist. Instead, what it entails is that it was within Jones's power to do something such that if he had done it, then a belief that God did hold at the time one would have been false. And so, let me give you the full statement. It was, even though God knew that Jones was going to mow his lawn, it was still within Jones's power to not mow his lawn. If he had refrained from mowing his lawn, then God would have held a false belief. And that's all that follows. And so, what he did is he put the power entailment into what we call a hypothetical conditional. And so, we have this kind of a assertion that the conditional doesn't hold in the real world, and therefore we don't need to worry about it. So that's what planning has said about it. And then the, the problem is, is that's hypothetical free will, the kind that is consistent with causal determinism. It's also true that it was within Jones's power to do something such that if he had done it, and let's say that God caused Jones to mow his lawn, he just straight out caused him. It was still within Jones's power to do something such that if he had done it, God wouldn't have caused him to do it. But that's just soft determinism. Sum up soft determinism again. We went over this already, but for those that might not have heard that episode, what's like a brief summary of soft determinism? Soft determinism adopts a view of free will that we can call hypothetical free will. That is, that I would have the power to do something if the circumstances had been different. But since they weren't different, I didn't really have the power to do it, but that's irrelevant because those weren't the circumstances. So what it asserts is, I could have done something if I had so desired. But I couldn't really do it, but it's irrelevant because I really didn't so desire. So it's this notion of a hypothetical ability to do something if the circumstances had been different. 
And what Plantica, again, is asserting is he's not denying that there is a power that would tell that God's held a false belief. He's just saying that, well, it's something that you never exercise. It's an unexercised power. So it entails power to do something such that God would have held a false belief, but since you didn't exercise that power, it doesn't entail that. And that's his argument. The problem is he didn't really notice that it, again, abandons libertarian free will and adopts a type of free will that is consistent with causal determinism. And so it's no longer libertarian free will. Instead, it's what we may call compatibilistic free will, if it's a type of free will at all. But we went over that in a prior chapter and determined that that was not an acceptable notion of free will. Is there anything you wanted to talk about before we talk about Plantinga's idea about Abraham being caused not to exist by this notion? No, and if you understand that, you can explain it, because it is simply what I'm asserting, and that is that Plantinga is asserting that we have a power that is so vast that we can exercise it in a way that is just absurd on its face. I don't even know that you really need to go into it, because it is just an example of what I just explained. Okay, that's fine. All right, then the next thing I have says, a quote from the book, says, it seems to me that we have two interrelated questions that must be posed regarding Plantinga's argument. One, is Plantinga's notion of counterfactual power over the past an adequate notion of free will? And two, does P6, what we talked about before, entail B or B star? What Plantinga gave us, instead of B6, he gave us a B star. That's an alternative premise. What he says is it doesn't entail any of the three things that Pike asserted. Instead, it entails... It was within Jones' power to do something such that if he had done it, then the belief that God held at time one would have been false. And so it doesn't entail any of the three alternatives that Pike asserted. Instead, it entails this hypothetical conditional. The problem is, is that the notion that it entails that hypothetical conditional is really what the question is. Does it entail one of the three, or does it entail his hypothetical conditional? What's a hypothetical conditional again? I mean, we kind of talk about it, just I think we need to clarify that. It's a conditional, an if-then type of a statement is a conditional statement. A hypothetical statement is one that assumes counterfactual facts. So it's asserting kind of counterfactual power. That is a power I would have if the facts were different than they actually are. So it's a, a hypothetical type of a power rather than an actual power. So what he's asserting is, and he even gives this example, he says, there's a possible world in which if I were to act in a certain way, then Abraham never would have existed. And so there is such a hypothetical world, but how can one take seriously that we would have power to make it so that Abraham never existed? That's the kind of power he's asserting. In fact, let me give you another example that, that Pike originally gave. There's a possible world where I'm chained to the furnace in my basement, and if I were to act in such a way that I weren't chained to the furnace, then I would have power to get away. But that just assumes I have power to get away when I'm in fact chained. What it demonstrates, I think, is that this type of hypothetical conditional is not a good way to analyze free will, and that the type of possible world semantics that Plantica engaged to discuss the issue are not really adequate to the issue of what is really within our power. My view is that, that nobody really followed Plantica in this argument. It wasn't one that caught hold, and for good reason. And that is, you know, what we could do in some hypothetical world isn't what's relevant to the issue. What's relevant to the issue is, given the way the world actually is, that is, assuming that God actually has free will and actually knew a specific future that would occur, would I have power to do otherwise than God knew that specific future would be? And the logical entailment suggests, absolutely not. I can't have that power because it would entail power to do something that I don't have power to do, which is change the past. The way I understand it, so this is all related to Molinism, which, if we recall, 
Luis de Molina was the one that came up with middle knowledge. And if we recall, middle knowledge is God seeing before anything how things would be in any circumstance that will or will not actually happen, so he can choose before he creates what world to create. And so this comes into play here, saying that had he seen something in your future, like let's say I eat a sandwich tomorrow, but for some reason eating that sandwich changed his plans for having Abraham coming into existence because that would not have worked out overall in the giant plan. And so, you know, we don't happen to live in that world where Abraham didn't come to exist because he did see that it did work out and that's why he made this world. Is that kind of where that's fitting? In a way it is, but it's more like this. Remember that De Molina argued that we take into consideration only the events that have a causal influence on the later world in determining what's relevant with respect to what we can and can't do. The problem is, if you adopt middle knowledge, God relied upon his knowledge of the counterfactuals, that is, the way things could be, in order to determine which world to create. And so his knowledge is a causal factor in the history of the world if you're a Molinist. So the argument not only begs the question, it adopts a false premise. All right. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Let's move on a little bit. There's a guy named Talbot that we want to talk about next. So who is Talbot? And then I'll talk about what he did. Thomas Talbot was a professor of philosophy, and he adopted a view that was similar to Bruce Reichenbach's position. That is that we, in fact, do have power to bring about the past when we're considering God's knowledge. Here's why. The fact that I mow my lawn in 2000 and tells that God knew in 1900 that God knew I would mow my lawn. If I were to do something else in 2000, it would entail that God knew something different. So, I do have this power to bring about God's knowledge by the act that I do. And what they're arguing is that I therefore do have power to bring about the past in this limited sense relevant to foreknowledge. We called that PEP, or Power Entailment Principle, and you basically just went over that. And so, you, at least I, as I understand it, you come up with a modified Power Entailment Principle, which you call PEP2. And if you want to go over that and tell the differences there and why it's necessary to come up with that. Sure. The power entailment principle one is that if one, it is in a person's power to bring it about that a certain proposition is true, and two, that proposition entails another proposition I'll call Q, and three, if Q is false, then it is in that person's power to bring it about that Q is true if that person has the power in question. This is kind of something that you need to look at logically. I can break this down. Let's say that it will rain tomorrow, and if it rains tomorrow, the streets will get wet. Assume that I also don't have power to stop the streets from getting wet if it rains. It follows that if it rains, the streets will get wet, and there's nothing I can do about it. I don't have power to stop that. So raining entails that the streets get wet, and it's not within my power to stop that. Conversely, if it rains tomorrow, entails that the streets will get wet, and I have within my power to stop the streets from getting wet, then I must also have the power to stop it from raining tomorrow somehow, because raining tomorrow entails that the streets will get wet. So it's a two-way power that I've got to have. If I'm going to be able to stop the streets from getting wet, I have to have power to stop it from raining. But I don't have power to stop it from raining, and I don't have power to stop it so that the streets don't get wet if it rains, so I just don't have the power in question. What happened is a very fine philosopher, Linda Zagzebski, came up with a few counterexamples to power entailment principles to suggest that that particular kind of example doesn't hold for all power entailment principles that involve exercises of human free will. 
So I developed what I'm going to call a rock solid with no alternatives power and tellment principle. Okay. I call it power and tellment principle too. And that is if A, that P entails Q, if it rains, then the streets will get wet. And B, that Q is true is a necessary condition of anyone's having in a power to perform an act, which entails that P is true. So that the, that the streets get wet is a necessary condition of anyone having power to perform an act, which entails that it rains tomorrow. And the, the streets are wet is not true, and it's not in anyone's power to bring it about that the streets are wet. It's also not in anyone's power to perform an act in telling that it rains tomorrow. And so this modified power entailment principle is immune to the types of counterexamples that philosophers have tried to use to show that the power entailment principle doesn't hold. What I've done is laid out a logical principle using the if then, if if it rains then the streets get wet. Okay. So should we just go into power to bring about the past section? Yeah, we kind of did that, but let's go into because power to bring about the past is the two-way power. Because if I mow my lawn in 2000, that logically entails that if God has infallible foreknowledge that he knew in 1900 that I would mow my lawn. So my power to mow my lawn in 2000 entailed my power to bring about something in the past. That is what God's knowledge would be. So I actually do have power to bring about what God's knowledge is. In other words, the causal dependence is in the other direction. What God's knowledge will be is dependent on my act. My act isn't dependent on what God knows. And given that this is the power-dependence relation, Bruce Reichenbach argues that what follows from premise P6 is that I do in fact have the power to bring about the past, and therefore the notion that I don't have the power to bring about the past is false. The problem is, is the question isn't whether I have power to bring about that if a certain fact occurs in the past, because my act does entail that if God has foreknowledge. The question is whether I have also power to change what that knowledge was in the past, given that it's now past, and at the time that I act, whether I could act in an alternative manner. So I guess my response is that what he's saying is largely beside the point. Look at the second paragraph on page 263 and just read Hasker's response because I think it's a very cogent response. Because the question of what does it mean to be within its power and what is the question in the argument that is at issue, because the way that Reichenbach addresses the argument is beside the point. He doesn't address the relevant power. All right, there's a quote from the book that describes William Hasker's response to Reichenbach, and it reads as follows. What is at stake in B4? What's B4 again? That nobody has power to change the past. So what's at stake in B4? is our power to bring it about that God has never held a certain belief, given that God has in fact always held that belief. Evidently, this cannot be a power to bring about a past event which has in fact occurred. It must be, rather, the power to bring about something in the past which did not occur. That is, it must be the power to alter the past. And since it is agreed that such powers are impossible, before is vindicated. And that is to say that the premise which asserts that nobody has power to change the past is vindicated. So what I take Hasker to be saying, and I'm in full agreement, I usually am, William Hasker, again, is another philosopher of religion, and he's somebody that I agree with on almost everything, in part because he argues so brilliantly, he convinced me. But what is at issue isn't the power to bring about a past that's consistent with our act, it's the power to alter the past that's inconsistent with our act because we had the power to do something that was different than God knew it would be. And so I think it's a fully adequate answer to Bruce Reichenbach that the power he's addressing isn't the power that's at issue in the incompatibility argument.
All right, let's kind of sum up, and this is sort of an intro too, but like, where does this fit in the big picture of our argument? So like I said, it, it stems from middle knowledge and Molinism in general, but why is it important enough to bring it up that you wrote a chapter in your book about it? In the philosophical literature, there were many, many kinds of responses to the incompatibility argument after Nelson Pike raised the argument in his very influential argument. And one of the arguments that was given in opposition to the incompatibility argument was that the logical entailment at issue really didn't follow, that it was a non sequitur, in other words. And so what we need to do is to respond to those who claim that the logical entailments that are at issue in the argument, in fact, hold. It is a logically valid argument. Their argument is essentially that your argument is logically valid. You've made a mistake somewhere or that you've misstated the premises in such a way that you didn't grasp what was really at issue in God's knowledge. And so those are the types of two responses that we're responding to. And these are very brilliant people. They have to be dealt with. Luis de Molina, a very similar response was given by Francisco Suarez, who was a student of Luis de Molina. And then you have responses by Alvin Plantica, Bruce Reichenbach. These are top-notch philosophers who were responding to the argument. And it seems to me that this kind of a response is one that really misses what's at issue in the argument or just ignores the logical entailment in the argument by a slate of hand trying to make something else look relevant rather than what is in fact relevant. So what we want to say is you'd have a power to do something if you had so chosen to do it. The fact that you couldn't choose to do it is irrelevant, but it isn't irrelevant to libertarian free will. It's the essence of libertarian free will. Or we want to argue that we only want to take into consideration those facts which are causally involved in the history of the world. We want to limit it to those facts. And the response to that is, we don't have to show that the facts are causally involved in the history of the world. All we have to show is that the argument is logically valid because it entails that we have a power that everybody agrees we don't have a power to do. And so the argument is vindicated as logically valid. So addressing the issue of its logical validity, I think, I don't know that it's been put to rest, but there's not a lot of ongoing discussion about these kinds of arguments anymore. Instead, the argument shifted to what I discuss in my next chapter, and that is, well, maybe you don't have power to change the past, but foreknowledge isn't really about the past, it's really about the future, and so you've misconstrued what foreknowledge is about, or you can argue that God is outside of time and therefore what God knows isn't really in the past at all. It's not even in time, and so your power to change the past isn't even involved when we're involved with the timeless God. So the argument shifted to those kinds of arguments, and we deal with those in the next chapter. Okay, yeah, and that was actually a question I was going to ask. Just yeah, It seems like if God's timeless, then being in the past is irrelevant because it's all one moment to him. It's not a past moment. But yeah, if we're getting to that later, then cool. Yeah, we address it next week. All right, is there anything else you think is relevant to entailment before we close this out? It seems to me that we're arguing two different things, because in Molinism, they seem to be arguing hardcore, and if you believe in the B theory of time, then they're valid, and if you believe in our theory of time, the A theory, then it just doesn't even make sense. But like I said, I had those same questions about the B theory. I'm like, well, if I really do have free will to do whatever I want, and the fact that I did some things, and those are facts now, and if I somehow had knowledge of that fact because the B theory of time was true beforehand, it wouldn't necessarily mean I wasn't free to have done it. It just means that when I use my freedom, I did it and someone had knowledge of the act. But I mean, I guess I'm seeing how that would make it so I couldn't do anything else. But I also kind of understand what he's saying about 
the Abraham not existing, even though that's a weird argument. But like, if he had a different knowledge, then it's just he has knowledge of whatever you would have done. Yeah, so the argument, well, look, what it entails is instead that you might have a power, but you can have a power even when you're not exercising the power. And the fact that you have a necessarily unexercised power doesn't mean you don't have that power. It just means that you necessarily you don't exercise it. It's that kind of an argument. And so it's a very, I would say it's a seductive argument because it, it's the kind of thing that the later Wittgenstein would say is kind of just a confusion in words. It doesn't really address the issue, though, and that is, does the fact that God knew something in the past entail that I don't have power to act in a way that's consistent with libertarian free will? That is, genuine power to either mow my lawn or refrain from mowing my lawn, or both inconsistent with all the facts that obtained in the past. And so, the question is, if I have a necessarily unexercised power, I'd say that's the equivalent of not having a power at all, because you can't have a power that's necessarily unexercised. And that's why the analogy of the rock on my foot, I think, is a good analogy. And that is because the same kind of an argument we go through there. I have a 2,000-pound rock on my foot. If I didn't have that rock on my foot, I would be able to lift my foot. But the fact is, I do have a 2,000-pound rock on my foot, so I can't lift my foot. The fact that I could lift my foot if circumstances were different is just irrelevant to what powers I have. Yeah, because that is the circumstance. All right, you know, that makes sense. Right now, yeah, I think most of my questions, like I said, are going to come up in the next chapter and be probably dealt with pretty thoroughly from what I've read so far. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.